0: Good morning, uh, Florence Christian Church. Good morning. My name's uh, Brian Kuntz. I'm one of the elders here at Florence Christian Church. have the opportunity to share with you this morning. Um, so I, I appreciate that and value that. Uh, We're going to be continuing in uh, Luke, a series we've been in for several weeks, uh, Luke, A World Turned Upside Down, is what it is, the series is entitled um, we're going to be continuing in chapter 11 of Luke today. We will be doing uh, finishing up that chapter, verses 29 through 54. Uh, so, Luke 11:29 through 54. I'd like to pray just before we get started, and then we'll we'll dive into uh, to the passage. Jesus, thank you for your Word and your Holy Spirit. And the way you reveal yourself to us and teach us, God, I pray that that would be true of our time here in your word, uh, that you would have your will and your way, and that you would change us to be more like you, I pray. Amen. 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 Um, so today, going through Luke, we're going to kind of verse by verse, We'll there's quite a few verses there. We'll read a few of those verses, go back, make some observations, and hopefully some Applications that uh, the word can change our life and our actions and our future and the whole world around us as a result of that. I know that sounds big, but that's the idea of it. <laughs> so uh, let's start out uh, Luke 11, uh, 29, verse 29. We'll read 29 and 30 here. It says this, uh, When the crowds were increasing, he, that is Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. That's striking. Uh, Not the only time we read this in the Gospels, but uh, when Jesus starts out He's gathering a crowd. The crowd's increasing. And what does he do? He makes friends by calling it like it is. He says, you're an evil generation, not the way you open. If I had hopped up here and started off that way, it may or may not have worked out. Some of you may have said, ah, I don't want to listen to this joker. I'm out of here. Um, but we see Jesus on multiple occasions throughout the gospel. Uh, address people in a way that is somewhat shocking when you at first you read it and you're I'm taken back by that I'm like well wait wait a minute what are you what are you doing there with things and that idea of who it is that's speaking uh, what he knows what he sees and the purity of his motives that he speaks the truth in love to them because he is God he is unable to speak a lie to them he's unable to not love um, and it would be unloving for him to tell them something that they just wanted to hear, to placate, to uh, offer lip service to them, whatever you want to call it. So he, he doesn't do that. He starts right out with, this generation is evil, and you're seeking a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. That's interesting, too. No sign given. I, I think of Jesus' ministry. If you've read through the Gospels, I would uh, it seems to me... Uh, quite a few signs. What, I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody walk on water or uh, heal the blind or raise the dead? That, these, no signs are given, but we, those things accompany Jesus everywhere that he goes. So I, I wrestle with that, but then as I go into the next verse, it says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, for as the sign <clears throat> For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And so, I, what is that sign of Jonah? If we flip over into, um, where are we at? It's in Matthew 12, 38 and 40. I want to read, it addresses this sign of Jonah and sheds a clear light on that. It says this, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This, this sounds familiar. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign, of the, uh, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that spells it out there for us, what that sign of Jonah is. It is uh, just like Jonah was in the fish and then came out of the fish. Um, So Jesus was in the grave, in the earth for three days. And then his resurrection is that sign. That is the sign that will be given. So if I consider the other signs that I mentioned earlier, like walking on water, uh, etc. And then I compare them to his resurrection, that is the sign that all those other signs pale in comparison to and become almost, I hate to say it, but almost nothing in comparison to what Jesus did at the cross for us. Um, All of a sudden, walking on water becomes not so substantial when you think of what he did and his resurrection at the cross. Um, That is the sign that was given. Going on in verse 31, So the Queen of the South, um, the story of her and what that is, she traveled a great distance. Um, One place that I read, they estimated at 1,400 miles, and she traveled to uh, see the the wisdom of Solomon, and after she had traveled and interacted with Solomon, she marveled at his wisdom um, that was from God. And 1,400 miles, even today, if I'm to take off this afternoon and travel 1,400 miles, hop in my car and go, that's substantial. I I don't have plans for that uh, today. But if you think of the setting in which she traveled 1,400 miles, um, it was at great cost, at great effort, with great peril, possibly, um, comparative to me jumping in my car and going 1,400 miles right now. so that puts a little bit into a little bit into perspective, but I, I can't read that and help but think, what are people going to the ends of the earth, as it was put, traveling to the ends of the earth for today? What do we seek out so diligently and at such great cost? Um, I don't know. Answer to that: money, maybe. I, yeah, that's a common thing. I can't th- help but think of um, like our southern border right now and. Oftentimes people will travel a very arduous, difficult journey for um, opportunity or uh, perceived safety, those sort of things. Uh, Things that are worth traveling for, worth putting effort to. Um, I don't mean to uh, insinuate that they're not, but how much greater is the thought of seeking, and we'll see in this passage, seeking out that sign of Jonah and seeking out a relationship with Christ and what he did at the cross. Um, We could have all the money in the world. We could have all of the perceived safety, all of the opportunity in the world, but if we do not have uh, things correct with God, we do not experience what he did for us at the cross, that doesn't become real to us. We are not saved. Um, Those things are for naught. And then So this is the queen of the south will rise up in judgment against this generation. Then the people of Nineveh, the story of of Nineveh, if you haven't read it, uh, Jonah is sent to take the message to them, uh, and he is a reluctant prophet at best, I guess would be an easy way to say it if you've read it. He tries everything to not do what God had asked him to do. He ends up Getting ate by a fish and then um, spit up on the shore at Nineveh. He finally goes to Nineveh, and he goes to them with this complete message of judgment, and um, I, his just. I can just. I get a picture of his attitude, and it's not a not a good one uh, when he went and delivered this message. But if we read in Jonah three uh, uh, verses three and four, it says this. Uh, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, here it is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he, he doesn't, it's not super gracious, not loving with things. It would appear on its face with things, but again, the truth. He's telling the truth, what God had told him to do. Now I don't pretend to believe that his uh, attitude was in the correct place because of the rest of his actions. And as we watch further on, we see when Nineveh does repent, he's quite distraught over that. He tells God, it would be better that I was dead than for them to repent. So that really gives insight (laughs) into his motives and and attitude of things. But we contrast that with... um, who has come to us with a message, Jesus, who has sought us out and his attitude and his heart to us. Um, examples of that in Luke uh, 4, I don't think there's slides for these passages, but Luke four eighteen, 18, uh, Jesus proclaims good news to us, bringing liberty and favor. That doesn't sound like Jonah's message to Nineveh. Um, Jesus came in John 10, it says, Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, This liberty, this favor, this life and life more abundantly is only available to us because of what Jesus did at the cross, because of the fact that he is resurrected, he's alive and it's not, um, it's a fact and it changes everything and it's not something that we, uh, it's just easy to lose focus of that reality that he was dead and he is alive. And I know for a couple weeks each year at Easter, we really have that focus. But um, what are we focusing on in mid-July? Are we, are we losing focus on that? I sometimes do. Um, I think we sometimes do. And that's, that's a tragedy. <clears throat> so continuing on, verse 33, it says this. It says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. So there's several verses here and throughout talking about this theme of light and what is that light. In John 8, 12, uh, Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world. So this, Jesus, is that light and that dwells in us that we want to put on a stand, to put on display for the world around us. And that's what they're getting at here. And it continues on in 34 through 36. Let's read that. It says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So in the last few weeks in preparing and going over this passage, I've, you know, I don't know how many <clears throat> times I've read through it, but also read it in uh, multiple versions. And that <clears throat> verse 34, if we are to read it in the King James Version, I really liked the emphasis it puts on it. It says this, uh, verse 34 in the King James. It says, The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when the eye is single, the whole body is also full of light. That idea of single, our singular focus with the eye, um, like this monocular view of things, really jumped out to me. And singular focus. So we can't help but stop and ask what is my singular focus? What is your singular focus? And what I mean by that, I don't mean to insinuate that we would only focus on one thing. Um, if I'm only focused on Jesus, which, and God, and his purposes, which I propose are, should be our singular focus, I also have to focus on these steps as I walk down or I'll fall. Um, I have to go to work on Monday morning, so I'm, I'm not meaning that singular focus in that manner, but in that, what is your chief focus, that singular thing that you are always returning to, that you're always with your peripheral vision keeping sight of, uh, even though there's life to do around that. And I think that um, sometimes we, we lose that focus, that singular view, and we are so divided um, that we really don't gain any traction and go anywhere or accomplish anything. Uh, An example of that in scripture uh, that stuck out to me because Kathleen and I, we raise quite a few cattle and so we are people like, oh, you're a cattle rancher. No, I'm a grass farmer. That's what it comes down to is grass. You're growing grass and then otherwise that's, that's the basis of it. Um, and so there's some of that in the Bible also. If we look at uh, back in Genesis, uh, Abraham and Lot had a lot of flocks. And they were traveling together. And this thought of what our eyes are on and what our singular focus is, is, is illustrated here well. They have been blessed, they have multiplied, and their two families are together. Comes to a point where they have too many animals They're they're too large, and they need to separate. Abraham comes to Lot and says, "Tells him that says, if you go to the left, then I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left." And so he gives, uh, just lays it out there for Lot. You choose where you want to go. And Lot in uh, there's in Genesis thirteen ten. He uh, he decides, and this is how he decides. It says this. It says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. Now as somebody who has cattle, or has flocks like him, you're going to notice grass. You're going to see that. That's, that would be appropriate and fitting with things. But if we read the whole story of Lot, which we're not going to this morning in time, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to go home and read it, He makes these series of uh, decisions starting right here. It seems like as he leaves Abraham and focuses on the grass and where he wants to go, Uh, a whole bunch of decisions that his focus is on something other than the Lord. And he winds up uh, destitute in a cave in an extremely compromised position. And uh, that didn't happen because his focus was correct. That was a a misguided focus and through a series of events and that is so easy for us, for that to happen to us too. Um, If we are not proactive about our focus and keeping that singular, and keeping it chiefly on God and where he's leading us and what he's uh, doing and saying, then we may find ourselves in a cave in a compromised position, just like Lot did. Uh, So we can learn from that um, and hopefully avoid those pitfalls. Uh, Verses 37 and 38 say this. It says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Kind of two things out of these verses. In verse 37, when he's invited to go to this Pharisee's place to eat, we see this often multiple times throughout Scripture. um, Quote, uh, either sinners or um, people who are even in opposition to Jesus, he accepts their invitation to socialize and to be with them. And that's an example for us. We are this, as we were talking earlier about a light that's put on a on a light stand, that Jesus, that we are to take that light to the lost, to the people who need that light, to the world around us. But I see two things in my life that have happened, and I see two things in uh, the life of, of the church and Christians concerning that. We see Jesus go in with pure motives. Um, and speak the truth and love to them and receive uh, the invitation and act on it. But we we either struggle with it seems like, yeah, I can't do that. I don't want to associate with uh, sinners or uh, whatever you want to say, which does not line up with scripture. We are supposed to go to the lost. But then the other side of that is, we all too often, oh yeah, we'll accept that invitation, and we go, and we go under the guile of we need their approval. Uh, We need them to like us. Um, That's our goal. Our goal is not going to shine a light and to tell the truth and to love. It is to be accepted. And neither one of those spectrums work, Um, but the example we see from Jesus is him going to them, Uh, in love, speaking the truth. um, And in the end, they crucified him. So, you know, you can take that to mean what it means. We can expect, when we follow his example, the fact that uh, some will come to know the Lord, some will accept uh, the light and the good news that we have, and some will not. Um, But that does not change our mission or our task or our purpose in life or even um, the way that we go about it. Uh, moving on here in uh, verse thirty nine, we read this. Uh, it says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the, of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So this picture of the outside of the cup looking clean or the dish and the inside is, is filthy and dirty. That idea that things are not always what they appear. In fact, most of the time they are not. In our society, uh, not so much th- a cup, but I don't know if you're on Facebook or some sort of social media, but things are not what they appear on there. I just clue you in, that's fake. Um, our media on TV, our print media, uh, our electronic media, it's, it's not what it appears, guys. Um, <laughs> don't, don't be deceived by that, and we see that through the rest of this passage, this idea of um, Things are not what they appear to be. And so for us as followers of Christ, we have to strive for the idea that who do people think you are on the outside, the outside of your cup? And does that at all come close to lining up with who God knows you to be in your heart? Um, Those are honest questions that we should ask ourselves and examine ourselves about things and make decisions based on the answers to those questions. Um, then in 41 where we read there uh, it says but give us alms those things that are within so that examining of our heart is key to knowing is that what people are seeing on the outside or are they seeing one thing but there's a lot of dirt on the inside uh, in our heart But it says, But as give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This kind of this blueprint in 41 for cleanliness, to be true to the deep inward things that God has called you to, uh, giving of yourself from within, uh, not just appearances, but uh, genuine in things. Uh, Verse 42 But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. It's a lot of woes to us and to them uh, with things, not, not a pleasant thing to be. Um, we, at the start of that in 42, Jesus you know, endorses tithing, um, and you can agree or disagree with me on that. I would just encourage you to search it out in scripture and see what it says um, for yourself. But, so he says yes to tithing, but he's asking for so much more from us. Um, as followers of Christ. And oftentimes that is an unpopular message for someone who has, um, you know, 30 minutes in this platform here in front of you to say to you is that there is an ask of you, that it's not just, well, yeah, just do whatever you want to do. We just want you to be here and to fill the pew. No, you know, the idea that Jesus as a follower of christ follower of jesus there is an ask of us and what is that ask is it tithe oh yeah and so much more it is your life that jesus asks for um and you can say no i've been told different than that i don't i don't believe you with things i read read scripture um and see for yourself with things you don't have to believe me Um, When I say that, um, but if you look in Scripture, I I think you will come to that same conclusion that I've came to—that Jesus asks for so much of his followers. Uh, He asks for our life, our very being with things, and that can be uncomfortable to hear. Um, In 44, I couldn't help, but as I was reading this the last few weeks, where he talks about unmarked graves, um, you know, it's been in the media. Uh, in Canada, the um, Catholic-ran schools that uh, were ran for First Nation kids and uh, from the 18, late 1800s through the 90s and all of these uh, unmarked graves that they're finding at these school sites, the genocide that went on there. And I, I bring that up because it's, it's in the headlines right now, and it's this idea of this unmarked graves, and it plays into... The cautionary tale for us, are there unmarked graves? Are, are, is there death below uncleanliness? And on the outside, we appear all good with things. That's something that you have to answer between you and God. I can't answer that for you. No one, the person sitting next to you doesn't get to answer that. Um, but we need to take inventory and stock of that. Um, are things what they appear to be? And I'm not talking do's and don'ts and you have to be perfect and that sort of thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in your heart, between you and God, um, examine that. It's worth pausing and taking a breath and, and looking at things. Um, he, would, he would require that of us. Um, you know, we, we want to avoid the appearance of one thing and the reality of something very different in our life. Um, Verses 45 through 51, I'll read those, kind of a long little passage here. It says, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation." from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So at the start of that passage in 45, we have Jesus out making more friends, speaking nice to people again. You know, he's he's lowered the boom, so to speak, on the Pharisees, and there's some lawyers there, and they're like, hey, hey, hold it a minute, man. Yeah, I'm feeling offended by what you're telling those guys because you're saying and he's just like yeah well you should feel offended um it's not oh sorry I, i didn't mean to offend you with things he speaks the truth to them in love um you know and it's it's just amazing that uh how many times we see jesus do that uh He's just, he's good at making friends. (laughs) Uh, Verse 46, he's talking about all these burdens that the lawyers are putting on them by uh, crafting laws and rules and this sort of thing, um, but then not helping them to shoulder that burden. And we know as followers of Christ, um, and if you don't know, I'll enlighten you, we are to bear one another's burdens. That is our job. That is a command of us, a requirement of us. It's not an optional Um, thing like oh this is a good idea the scriptures don't say would be a good idea if you have some spare time to bear your brother's burdens no it says to bear one another's burdens that is a charge to us and then in 47 uh, through 51 we have this the irony of these lawyers building these monuments to the prophets whom their fathers and grandfathers killed um If they were such godly men, which they were, I'm not insinuating that, that deserved a monument, why would you kill them? Uh, You know, Jesus is just calling them out on the fact of saying one thing, but having done something completely different. That duplicity, that lack of uh, the inside lining up with the outside with them and then in fifty three and fifty four that that continues on verses fifty three and fifty four it says this as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. <laughs> the idea of uh there that there while building these monuments to prophets that their ancestors killed, trying to look good, but on the inside, they're already plotting to kill the greatest prophet, to kill Jesus himself. Talk about a cup being dirty on the inside and trying to look good on the outside. It is just example after example in this passage of that. And so we need to pause and take inventory of ourselves and thank God, man, deal with my heart, deal with the inside of me. I am less concerned with the outside of me and concerned about my heart. And so I go before God because I know my heart and God knows my heart. The person next to you may or may not know your heart. So between you and God, between me and God, I go and I examine my heart And I say to him, God, help me. Because I know what I'm prone to. I know how vile my heart can be with things. And so I have to pause. And I have to examine. And I have to be proactive. And I have to take control of that with God's help. Otherwise, um, I wind up like Lot in a cave in a compromised position. Um, And I'm not the only one, guys. So I know I know I 'm not, so um, I would caution you with that. I would caution myself with that. so I want to kind of wrap up here and close. Um, the band can make their way back up here if they would um, verse fifty two we we skipped over as we were reading that uh, purposefully. I want to go back to there. And read that to you. And it, and it says this. It says. Woe to you lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves. And you hindered those who were entering. That idea of the key of knowledge. There are several um, things that God has given us. Um, one of the paramount things for that key of knowledge. Is, is this book right here. And. I'm shocked by how readily available this is to us in this day and age. In print, electronically, on your phone, uh, everywhere you go. Uh, But how little attention we pay to it. Um, And that idea of that key of knowledge, did you enter yourselves? Do you read this um, Monday through Friday like your life depends on it? Do you base um, your decisions in life on what is written inside this cover? Or do you come on a Sunday and hope that somebody will teach you something? Um, I'm not down on Sunday mornings in any way, shape, or form. I don't mean to insinuate that. I am all for it. I am a champion for that cause of the church gathering and worshiping and looking into his word and learning from one another. but I'll tell you, I'm a real champion of you, of me, of us, digging into this key of knowledge uh, on our own and seeing what it really says for ourselves. It is available to us. And then in that passage, it talked about hindering others. As the church, as a representative of Christ here on earth, as that light in a dark place, when we are not in God's word, we are hindering his process, and what he wants to do with us, and through us, and in us. Um, it's hard to be that light without time spent in this. And I just want to encourage you in that, and I want to read a quote to you um, from a lady. Her, her name is Jenny Allen, the author, um, and it, this was a book my wife was reading, actually, and she shared this with me, and it, it really struck me. This idea of light, and us being the light, Um, One of the keys being in God's word so that we might be effective as the light. She said this, and I will say this to you. Uh, Interject yourself in here where it says son or where it says kid. She said this to her son as he left to go to college. Uh, and And it says this. It says, son, you are light. I know this because I have seen God in you. I have seen you go from a selfish punk kid to a young man who responds to conviction. A young man who hears from God. You love people and you even put others ahead of your own interests. All of this is evidence that God is in you. So, hear this. This is what I say to you. So, you are light, it's a fact. It's your God-given identity as one of his kids. You're headed into pitch-black darkness. There will be times you act like the darkness, but you will never be the darkness, and you will never be at home in the darkness again.